The Word does the work. So let's get right into the book of Philippians. We are in chapter 4, so put a finger in that chapter. Just a little bit of a framework for what we're going to see today. I met with a former pastor on, I think it was either Tuesday or Wednesday. He shared his story. He visits here quite often. He doesn't live here, but he visits quite often. He told me a story of how his wife passed away, and he continued to pastor. I was thinking, wow, that would be an incredible task, uh, hurdle. And then even how the church he was pastoring began to edit his sermons and kind of lean on him for certain things and postures they wanted and certain views they wanted him to adjust. And so long story short, he not only lost his wife, but a few years later he stepped away from his church. And when I left that meeting, I was just thinking, you know, it's amazing the kind of peace this man exhibited just in our conversation. But that would be a, a lot of hurdles, call them speed bumps, pits, dark nights, valleys, use whatever metaphor you want. There's a lot to get through, and I begin to think about all the folks that we pray for every week in our church. And I begin to go through the list of those who have terminal illnesses, those who have financial situations, employment crises, issues with wayward children or marriages that are just really on the blink, or maybe those who find themselves suddenly separated I mean, there's just a lot of things, and I begin to realize that in most of my pastoral counseling, whether it's in a setting like with this pastor, just getting to know him or with some of you, the real root thing that people are looking for is peace. Like they want answers. They want like a how-to, and that's not wrong. They want a tip. They want some immediate help, but what they're really asking for is, will this Lead me to what I'm truly seeking, which is peace. Like, how can I live long term with these speed bumps, these hurdles, these pits, these valleys, these dark nights, all that I am going through or all that I have gone through? Point me in the direction where there is long term, say it with me, peace. People want peace. And Paul directly addresses this in Philippians 4 in two spectacular verses, verses 8 and 9. Your fingers in chapter 4, your eyes should be on verse 8. I'd remind you before we dissect these two verses, this is the final concluding thought on a whole section about peace. Do you recall? Verses 2 through about 7, he dealt with relational peace. And now in verses 8 and 9, he's going to talk about personal peace, that which I think every single human being is truly deep down after. Personal peace. He's going to show us and tell us how this is achieved. And by that, I mean uh, sought after. You could say even received how it's experienced. What brings about personal peace? Well, Philippians 4, 8 and 9 will tell us. And what I want to do is, walk you through these two verses using three words. In fact, I'll have you say them with me. The three words are text, truth, and tactics. Will you say that with me? Text, truth, and tactics. I will kind of walk you through the text. We'll end with one 
singular truth we'll get our hands around. Then I want to spend the remaining time, hopefully about half of the time together, in applying this by giving you some tactics. I told my wife earlier, I think this will be the most applicational message I've preached in 10 years. And I'm not against application. I'm not real good at it. I'm probably more in tune with theology. I believe personally that theology, when you believe right, you will ultimately behave right. So I want to spend more time on making sure we believe correctly. But in this text, there's just so much application waiting to be kind of unearthed. And so uh, if you are a Someone who loves application, you'll like me today. Trust me. Can we dig into these two verses and discover how one receives personal peace? Here's the text for us, Philippians 4, 8, 9. I'll just show you the verses. Follow along with me in your Bible, mark in your journal. God says to us through Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true... Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell, some of your verses would say think, on these things. Verse 9, do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me and the, say the next three words with me, God of peace will be with you. Now remember, back in verse 7, he talked about the peace of God. Now he's proclaiming to us this God of peace that will be with us as a result of two things, there are two imperatives in these verses, and they're really close together in our Bibles. The first one is the word dwell in the CSB, or it will be the word think in some of your translations, the same concept here. And the next one is the word do. These are the two imperatives, dwell in verse 8 and do in verse 9. And the Apostle Paul is saying that when we dwell on these things and then do these things, he promises the God of peace will be with us. That should bring a smile to your face. This promise that if we dwell on these things and do these things, the God of peace will be with us. Now, what he's done here is he's really provided for us two lists. They're not necessarily hard to understand, but they they do take some grammatical explanation. So I'll do more on the podcast Tuesday for sake of time today. But I want to just give you a peek into some fantastic uh, structure that is in here, okay? Notice, first of all, in regards to the first verb, which is to dwell on these things or to think on these things. These things refers to really these six adjectives in the first part of the verse. Let me show them to you. Have your Bible, your journals with you? Notice, he says, whatever is true, there's the first adjective, and then he almost repeats himself, but he changes the adjective. Whatever is honorable. Now you say, Todd, why are these adjectives? Because in the most technical sense, this phrase could read like this. Whatever, um, whatever things, whatever are true things. In that sense, see how there's an adjective there? Whatever are true things, whatever are honest things, whatever are lovely things, whatever are pure things. He's describing, it seems like just 
a, a, a comprehensive type of expansive category. Anything that's true, anything that's right, just, honorable. And because he mentions the phrase whatever every time, he's actually moving from category to category. He's covering a large spectrum of things that you could set your mind on, things you could dwell on, things you could logically begin to um, think about. And he's saying the things that you should set your mind on, mentally dwell on, give great thought to and ponder are these things. Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable. Those are the six adjectives that describe the all-consuming categories. And I would contend with you, I'll say more to you, that he's not speaking just Christianly, but even culturally. He's talking about an expansive array of things you can think about. And he's saying that what you should think about and dwell on and ponder, contemplate and meditate on are those things that are true, as opposed to faults, honorable, which simply means um, noble. It's a word used only when, in Paul's writings at least, it's a word only used to describe certain folks in the church, like pastors and older people and different um, segments. It's like, this is a noble thing. It's, a, it's an honorable thing. It's an honorable type of position. This is the same word used here. Whatever is just, which means there in the sense of right versus wrong. Whatever is pure, innocent, the word could be blameless. Whatever is lovely, intriguing word here, it means that which would cause pleasure and appreciation. In fact, in the Old Testament, um, translation into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. In the book of Esther, this is the word used to describe Esther's face and what it did to the king. It made him appreciate everything that would bring him pleasure and delight. Interesting word. And then whatever is commendable or of good report. This is a word from which I think we get our word euphonium. It's the word euphonic, which means it sounds pleasing to the ear. So you think about a musical instrument that plays a beautiful sound. That's a good, that's a good sound here. It's a good report. He's saying things like that. So, so you see him given a pretty expansive list. And he says to dwell, to set your mind, to think about these things. The word dwell here is a good word because it's used in Philippians 3. When Paul says he does not consider himself to have reached the goal of perfection. It's the same word, consider. In other words, when Paul looks at his life, he knows he's got a long way to go, even though God has saved him, is working in him and bringing him to, um, you know, bringing him all the way home, is sanctifying him. He knows he's got a long way to go. So he's logically concluding. He's thinking. He's meditating. He's dwelling on this fact. It's a, it's a result of contemplation. He gives it thought and intentionality. Same word. So he's asking us to give thought and intentionality, um, contemplation to these six categories. 
And here's why these six categories are important, because these six categories, notice the next phrase, are things that are excellent, and there are things that are praiseworthy. Now, notice how this phrase in your Bible is inserted between dashes. Do you notice that? And you notice it begins with the word if. Again, I'm going to be a little grammatical with you, so pardon my nerdness, but this is helpful to understand the text. This is really the two nouns that modify these six adjectives. He's saying this, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever's just and pure and lovely and commendable, the word if here, it's, it's what they call in Greek uh, studies a conditional clause or a conditional phrase. And in this case, the word if could easily be translated since. In other words, the author is assuming that the situation is true. So he's saying all of these things that are true and right and just and honest and pure and lovely and commendable, since they are virtuous, the word there is moral excellence, and since they are praiseworthy, meaning they would cause someone to praise, they would generate worship to God. Since that's what would happen by thinking about these things, he then says, dwell on these things. So the first action he calls for is a contemplative, intentionally meditative, thoughtful, pondering type of life mentally to think on the right things. I use the phrase filtered thinking. And wouldn't you smile and perhaps grin and poke your spouse because sometimes we have a lot of unfiltered thinking, don't we? More on that later. Just know that Paul here is calling for filtered thinking. He's saying there are certain categories that are wide and they're vast and they're expansive. Think about those things, whatever is true. Now, I'll mention this, I'll say more Tuesday, but I do believe here Paul is not just saying whatever is true Christianly. I think he's saying whatever is true even in the culture. Like, look at all I've made, God is saying, and whatever is true, which everything he made is true, in other words, think on those things, what's just and right. He's asking for a fully Christian, fully cultural, can I say this to you, fully integrated way of thinking that does not buy false ideas, wrong, unjust ideas, ideas that aren't pleasing or that would lead us not to right pleasure but to wrong pleasure. Are, are you seeing what's happening here? A fully integrated, fully and rightfully cultural Christian who's thinking correctly about everything and making sure that it's right and true and just and fair and lovely. I love the way this verse forces me to give thought to everything I see and say, that's in, that's out. You with me? He's calling for filtered thinking. When you hear that, you may think I'm calling for less thinking. I'm not. I'm calling for fuller thinking. Deeper thinking. Courageous thinking to look at the culture, to look at the issues, and in an integrated biblical fashion, consider, is this true? Is this right? Is this lovely? And just go through the list. If it is, dwell on it. 
If it's not, don't dwell on it. So the first item of action is to have a filtered thinking, to ponder intentionally things within these six categories. He then moves in verse 9 to an interesting um, verse in which he basically says, copy what you've seen in me. I mean, it'd be hard if you were preaching this to say that. Could you just admit that if you're, if I were to come to you and say, okay, here's your step this week, just, you know, can you just do what I do? Like, I, I would never say that. That just seems weird to even say as an illustration right now. But this is what Paul says. He says, do what you've learned and received and heard from me. He's not being arrogant. He's simply making sure they know the practices there to follow. In other words, you could take the words learned and the words received that typically refers to what he's handed down in regards to spiritual um, doctrine, the gospel, even the word traditions is used in the New Testament. So things that they needed to know from a gospel point of view. He's saying what you've learned and what you've received and then what you've heard and seen in me. So all four of these words really go back to Acts 16 when he planted the church there with Lydia, when he met with those believers in her home, uh, the jailer who was saved and then baptized with his house. So in other words, Paul spent time with these church planters, teaching them, living before them, and he's recalling to their mind what they saw and what they heard. He's saying, what you saw and what you heard, just do that. And then he says this, and the God of peace will be with you. So if words mean anything, and they do, here's what we see, that filtered thinking with followable practices it results in the God of peace being with us. That's just a very succinct summary of these two verses. If you dwell on these things mentally and then you do these things actively, can we use the word physically, Paul says the God of peace will be with you. Now let's understand what he means by that. Because I don't think Paul meant God was not with him up to this point. Do you? I don't think you believe that. Paul uh, is saying that God is with them in a more acute, like aware fashion. They're, they'll be more aware. Uh, they'll sense God's presence, which is a fact. And yet they'll be aware of it in a greater detail or to a greater degree. And on that, I think all of you in a very uh, anecdotal fashion would say, yeah, I've experienced that. There have been times you would say theologically and factually, God is with me, and you know that. And then there are times you have sensed what we might call the, the manifest presence of God, right? You wouldn't say, well, God wasn't with me before this, but you would say, I became acutely aware that God was with me. I think that's what Paul is after. Now, understand this about the God of peace. The God of peace, which gives us his peace, we often think about that in terms of a subjective tranquility. Say those words with me, subjective tranquility. I don't think that's all wrong. 
It's because of verses 2 through 7 in which he says that his peace surpasses all understanding. So can we admit that there are times when the peace of God is so prevalent and powerful and strong that it's hard to put into words and so it becomes in some sense kind of subjective. We have this unexplainable calm. Would you agree with that? Like that's not false, but it's not fully complete either because the God of peace is not a subjective tranquility. He is an objective reality. The God of peace gives in concrete fashion that which nothing else can do. He gives himself. At times, you'll be more acutely aware of his presence. He does this in various ways, one of them being spiritual gifts. We said in a more common way, it's God going public, God showing up, even though you would say, well, God's here, yes, but when spiritual gifts are used, it's very evident, and we're more aware, and there's other ways that God does this. So what I'm saying to you is there's an objective reality that's even greater than the subjective tranquility of peace. So I want you to hear this, that when we talk about dwelling on these six things, which are virtuous and bring us to a place of praise and then doing what we know is biblical and accurate and gospel-centered, that which we've seen our mentors, those habits we've seen our predecessors practice over and over and prove to be spiritual disciplines that actually work when we do what we've seen and heard and learned and we dwell intentionally on what is right and good and pure, we will be more acutely aware of the presence of the God of peace, which will translate then to a peace you cannot explain. That's how all these verses fit together. And this is the key to personal peace. Filtered thinking and followable practices. Thinking right and acting right. And hear me well, it doesn't produce God. It doesn't suddenly make God appear. It just simply puts us in a position where we're more aware and acutely in tune with what already is a reality. God is here. See, that's what you need in the hospital room, the funeral home, the courtroom, you know God is there. But at that moment, you need to be acutely aware that he's there. You need here what verse 7 says. I love this phrase. It's backing up a bit. But he says, it's the peace of God that guards your hearts and minds. Don't you love that? Like sometimes we enter things with just our mind. And sometimes, interesting, just our hearts. Like sometimes we're all knowledge and no emotion. Other times we're all emotion and no knowledge. I think in this text, as well as others, Paul is calling for both. Again, this fully integrated uh, experience that, yes, there's an objective reality. God is here and he's the God of peace. And then because we will dwell on and do some things, we will then experience this peace that cannot be explained from this God of peace. 
It's personal peace. Now, because this text, I mean, we've only scratched the surface of this text. I, I, uh, I was thinking this morning, I memorized this verse as a kid in a group of scripture memory in this like um, club I was in called BMA, Bible Memory Association. I'm going to learn verses every week. It's kind of like Iwana. Um, but this is one of the ones I learned for uh, at the beginning of every year. And I just remember having to rattle off this list, you know. But this week, man, especially, this list has just come to life in my own heart. Just think about really the simplicity of how to receive peace. Thinking right, which is filtered thinking, and then just do the right thing, which is practice what you've seen done by those who have peace. Filtered thinking and followable practices. He says to us, this will then position you to be more acutely aware of the God of peace. Can I put this in a simple truth for you? Here it is. Biblically filtered thinking and biblically followable practices are core ingredients to personal peace. And I still maintain that's what everybody's really after is peace. Now, because these are hard words to string together, I want to make you say them with me because I don't want to be the only guy trying to mutter them out. Are you with me? Here's the simple truth of these two verses regarding personal peace together, church. Biblically filtered thinking and biblically followable practices are core ingredients to personal peace. Now, you're going to write that down. You're going to tuck it in your pocket. You're going to agree like, Spot on, but you're going to wonder right now, like, how do I do that? Like, give me, a, give me something, Todd. Glad to. I want to give you three tactics that will help you think biblically and to filter your thinking. I think this is what he's calling for. In fact, these two words came to mind this week. I think what he's calling for is limitation in our thinking and by that, I don't mean ignorance, but I mean intentionality. You with me? I mean, we, we would be foolish to say that Paul here is not putting guardrails around our minds. He is. So we need to be honest and say that there's a sense in which he's calling for limitation in our thinking. Not ignorance, but an intentional approach to how we think. He's also calling for imitation in our habits. So can you say those two words with me? Limitation, imitation. I think those are two kind of good words to use when you think about these two verses. And if you really want to receive um, a greater, deeper, fuller awareness of the God of peace, which would translate then to his peace in your life, I think limitation and imitation are some things you've got to wrestle with. Who around you seems to be ha living a peaceful, gospel-centered, biblical life? I'm going to do what they do. And I'm going to be willing to say, I'm going to limit my thinking to the things that are true and just and right of good report. And could it be, but just ask the honest question in the room, could it be that we're not sensing peace personally because we think these things are old fashioned? They're too strict. They're legalistic. I don't believe that. We have all these excuses. What if, what if we just did what the Bible said? We stopped thinking in unfiltered ways and we copied those who've gone before us. We might find just what the scriptures say. We'll be more acutely aware of the God of peace's presence. And then we'll have the peace of God. So here's three tactics to help you 
get started on this road. I want to qualify by saying this. These are just three. They've ones that helped me. I think we could go from section to section and probably garner a dozen or more. I don't have a verse for these tactics specifically. I have principles and verses that lean into them. So they're right, they're true, but these aren't exclusive. They're, they're, they're not like a verse from the Bible that would say these are inspired. So I want you to hear that humbly. I'm gonna share with you some tactics that have worked for me. Um, I wanna ask you to copy them. I've copied them from people before me. Are there other tactics? Sure there are. Share them in your small group. Talk to your children about them. Talk to your parents. Maybe gather a, a larger list so that we can begin to think and do so that we experience to a greater degree the God of peace. Here's the first tactic. View your mind as an airport. All right? Church, hear this. Around your mind, you can use the word brain, your mental capacity, your faculty, your cranium. Around your mind are a thousand planes every minute. And they're wanting clearance to land. But you are the director and the operator of the control tower. Only let the planes land that are true, right, just, commendable, lovely, that list. If that plane doesn't have that word on there, let it fly on by. Second Corinthians 10 says this, that we're to take every thought captive. It's another way to simply say, limit your thinking to scriptural categories and topics. And again, some of you are hearing this like, well, Todd, that means I can't think about anything in the culture. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if it's a cultural subject, make sure it's filtered through the Bible. Think about it through scripture. Don't just accept it. Oh, I guess someone said it. It must be true. Are you, are you tracking with me? You following me? So view your mind as an airport and know that th there are a thousand planes asking for permission to land all the time. Only let the ones land that line up with Scripture. I want to speak here to teenagers in the room. Upper elementary, you're in this service. If you can just think about this, you third graders and fifth graders, this is not a hard concept. Think about your mind as an airport. And even now as a young elementary student, start saying to yourself, does that plane that wants to land on my mind, does it line up with scripture. And if it doesn't, just say, uh, you can't land and it'll fly on by. Let the ones land that fit with scripture because your mind is an airport and Satan wants to land all kinds of planes on that airport. And what he lands typically stays for a while. It unloads a lot of baggage and passengers and freight and cargo. So planes that shouldn't land, just tell them to fly on by. Your mind is now. It's a tactic that's helped me. I'm in the control tower. The word of God's in the control tower. You can use whatever language that you want, but don't give permission for unbiblical planes to land on your mind and unload their cargo. Okay? Now maybe you're saying, well, Todd, 
when those planes land, um, you know, what do I do then? Or how do those planes land? Or talk a bit about, you know, ones that land that should land. Here's what I want to share with you that tactic number two involves the gates of that airport. And the gates to the airport of your mind are your eyes and ears primarily. I could throw a few more in there, but I won't go there today. Just know that your eyes and your ears are your primary gates. That when a plane lands, that's how the cargo is unloaded. In fact, don't you find it interesting that in Philippians 4 9, Paul talks about doing what we've seen and heard and learned and received. He's speaking of gates there by which we receive information. We receive relationships. We receive um, protocol and, and things. Just, we, we just kind of start processing all that's on this plane. So I want to encourage you to guard the eyes and the ears. If you're wondering, like, well, how do I keep a plane from landing? How do I make sure it flies on by? Don't quit, uh, excuse me, quit looking at it. That's one way to keep a, fly, a plane flying away. If you're watching a show, if you're looking at a website, if you're looking at a live person, and you keep staring, you're giving clearance for that plane to land, and it's going to unload some cargo that's going to be hard to deal with. So stop giving permission for the eye gate to look at that. Are you with me? Same thing with our ears. Stop giving permission to keep listening or hearing. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, an interesting verse, it's in a chapter on the resurrection, but he said this, evil communication corrupts good manners. He's speaking there of relationships that speak the wrong thing to us, but over time, if we keep listening, they'll even corrupt the good Christian, we'll use the word manners, or the stances or the postures of those who do believe. It's insidious. You just keep giving an ear to that which is false, and over time, it begins to erode even the surest foundation. So I want you to understand this. Adults, children, all of us, at the airport of your mind, there are two main gates, your ears and your eyes. And that's how you can give something permission, or you can say, keep on flying. Like the remote should be used more often, the off button. There have been times you and I have been watching a show, had no idea what was coming next, and suddenly we begin to see something, and immediately we're like, not watching this, and we're not going to watch the rest of it. Sometimes you just kind of aren't aware, you're not sure. You, and these things happen, take action quickly. It happens in conversations. So I just want to encourage you to begin to filter what comes into your mind by filtering what you watch and what you hear. Are there more strategies? Are there more tactics? Is there more to this? Yes, there is. But this is a good beginning point. Know your mind's an airport, and the way they land is through your ears and eyes. Now, this same principle holds true on the positive side, which is why I would encourage you, read more of the Bible. Spend time in prayer with an actual, I believe, an actual list that can help your mind focus. Often we say, I'm going to kneel down and pray, and we pray, and we have nothing really to focus our attention. Our mind wanders, or we go to sleep. 
So I would say write down your requests, keep an actual list, and use it to focus your mind and talk just above a whisper where you can hear yourself and work through, if you need a, 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 like a format, work through adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, a real simple acrostic that works for prayer. You can develop your own. But I would have a list of things you're working through, pray the scriptures, so that your mind doesn't wander, your eyes don't begin to catch things that are distracting. These are things that will help us have filtered thinking and give us followable practices. Now, I want to make one more comment, then I'll go to tactic three. Listen very carefully. I do think this has been a universal struggle since the beginning of time. Do you recall what Eve did? She heard from the serpent and she uh, saw the fruit, right? Eyes and ears opened the door to a bad day in the garden. But I want to say this to you. While I do believe it's a universal struggle, I do think it is on steroids currently. I mean, information is coming at you at a pace and at a rate that's hard to even quantify. The speed has been exacerbated beyond what I would have ever thought possible. I remember sitting and being in my mom and dad's kitchen when we lived on Mayfair Avenue and joking about the fact that we had a yellow phone on the wall. And we would joke about, wouldn't it be cool if one day we could see the person we're talking to? Like, it's common now. I mean, FaceTime, group chats, Zoom, like, it's no big deal. That's even considered, uh, you know, old-fashioned, right? Like, what's next? To be honest with you, I don't know what technology is going to do next for this whole principle of eyes and ears. There is so much coming at your gates that if you are not a critical, filtered thinking Christian, using the word to judge everything that comes your way, and you're probably in for a catastrophe at breakneck speed. So I hope you don't hear this and think, oh, it's not that big of a deal. I would say to you, while it's a universal problem since the beginning, it is exponentially faster, which means the downfall happens quicker. So guard the airport of your mind by watching the gates of your eyes and ears. That's a good place to start. And let this be the gatekeeper. My third tactic would be this. And this is more of a positive. Although those sounded kind of, you know, fenced in, strong, coming at us. But here's more of a positive thing to do with the planes that land. Envision your life's horizons. In other words, so you let the plane of Scripture reading and Bible memory and prayer land. And you're going to do this on a regular basis. You're going to filter your thinking and follow this practice given to us, you know, from our forefathers, the Bible. That we're going to spend time in God's Word. We're going to pray. Think, now what would my life look like in 40 years if I did that regularly? That's a really good question to ask because often, this is what I call endpoints. Endpoints give motivation to entry points. Remember the gates are entry points? We often want to ward off things, but we also want to welcome things. And so I want to welcome what will help my entry point turn into an end point. Like in 40 years, 
What would my marriage look like if I didn't look at pornography and lust after another woman? Every husband should ask themselves, what would my marriage look like? Like, that's the marriage I want. You'll have great thoughts in your head about that marriage in 40 years. Then guess what? It starts at the entry point by not viewing pornography, not lusting. Are you with me? This is what I mean by envisioning life's horizons. What would your life look like if you took seriously, verse 9, of doing what you've learned and heard and received and seen in those that you look to as mentors, your gospel heroes, we'll call them, your spiritual leaders? Hey, kids, what would it look like if you looked like to your parents? I'm assuming here that your parents are leading you well. If you said, I'm going to do what they say, I'm going to do what they do, because I want my life to be like theirs. That's not a complicated equation just to do what you've seen and heard and learned and received from your mom and dad. Envision your life's practices. This also works in reverse. Let me speak to some of you here probably who are engaged in secret sins. You've got probably a life of, a, of, of, of closet activities nobody knows about. But I want to ask you a question. If you keep engaging in those and practicing those and doing those and becoming more and more risky with those, what will your life look like in 40 years? Do you want the end of that picture? And your mind right now is saying, well, that's not me. I remind you, exceptions are a terrible strategy. So I think this has been very helpful. Because endpoints give motivation to entry points or endpoints that seem like that would be the worst day of my life can give motivation to stopping the entry of certain things. I recall when this happened in my life in the most important way. And I've had several of these kinds of moments, both good and bad. But I recall it was about 1999. Brooke was just months old. And I knew that somewhere I needed some deep character change in regards to my temper. I've mentioned this before, so I'm going to go into detail. I think the bigger issue was my appetites. I didn't have a lot of discipline in general over my appetites, which when I didn't get what I wanted, it resulted in a temper tantrum. So the problem wasn't my anger. Anger is a response. It was wrong. It was sin. The problem was what was I wanting? It was my appetites. I remember reading Proverbs where it says that a man without self-control, like a city broken down without walls. In other words, defenseless. I had this thought. Will I be the pastor who's exposed for having an affair? Like, could I be that guy in 20 years if I don't deal with this in 20 or 40 years that at the, that might, are you with me? I'm even staggering to, discuss it because it was so leveling uh, and terrifying. That I, I said, I don't want to be that guy. That end point was so horrific that it caused me to drastically address some entry points. And in 1999 till about 2001, I would say God did the deepest character work I've ever experienced. And I, don't, I couldn't even tell you what I did. I, I've tried to 
sequentialize it or even, you know, itemize it. It's hard to describe a work of God when you're desperate. But I remember feeling desperate, like, God, if you don't change something deep inside of me, I'll be that guy. I'm defenseless. I'm open. Like, I would be open to an affair. I'd be open to something terrible with my kids. Like, every sin that you think could never be mentioned, I'm like, I'm not an exception. That could be me if I'm a city without walls. If I'm defenseless, why wouldn't that be me? And that just scared the living daylights out of me. And I said, God, do something radical in my life. And I'm not anywhere close to perfect. It's an everyday laying down. But man, I am not that guy anymore. Praise God. Because God did something in me that's almost, that I can't even explain. Because the end point was so horrifying that something had to happen to the entry points. Since then, I've learned to actually flip that. So Julie and I often say to each other, hey, you know, when, when we're 70-something and we're sitting in those chairs, what kind of member do we want to be? We always say, I want to be our pastors, our next pastor's best supporter, best friend. I want to watch our grandkids enjoy youth group. And so that changes some entry points here. We want to try to lead humbly. I want to lead with graciousness. I want to invest in our youth ministry and children, even when we're no longer have kids in. Like all these things are in our head. Like, okay, what does this end point look like now for this entry point? So I think I'm repeating myself. I'll just be done with that. I think you get the point, don't you? And some of you right now, you have not developed long distance eyes. You're thinking, I got by today one more time. Nobody yet, nobody yet knows. And God help you. To see that the end point in one situation could be horrific, so change the entry point. Or what if the end point is just fabulously spectacular? If you'll just do some basic disciplines here at the entry point. What you've learned and seen and heard in me. So that's why I think envisioning life's horizons. It's when you let a plane land that has really good habits and thinking, and you say, I'm going to do that for the next X amount of years. And I'm going to bank that God then will do this. That's all I'm asking. That's a tactic that's helped me. So again, here's the three tactics. View your mind as an airport, and you're in charge of the control tower. Let the word determine which planes land. Number two, in this airport, there are two main gates you got to watch, the eyes and the ears. So be careful what you see and be careful what you hear. And give greater attention to hearing and seeing things that will actually help you become the kind of person that you know God wants you to be. Envision your life's horizons and engage in those practices and think on those things. When you do, here's what happens. The objective reality of God becomes unexplainably tranquil in every moment. You experience peace because you trust God's work. You trust his word. You're giving yourself to thinking this way and acting this way. And so Isaiah 26 is right. He will keep him in perfect peace because his mind is stayed on him because he trusts 
in you. That's, that's what the verse says. We read it earlier. So let me ask you this question. What's the one thing you identified when Taylor asked us to think about that during that song? Don't say it out loud, just in your mind. What is it? What was the one thing that came to mind? Yes, I need to surrender that to God. I need to think correctly about that and do the right thing in regards to that. What's that one thing? Let it come again to the forefront of your mind. You need peace in that, don't you? You need the God of peace right in the middle of that situation. And you need to be acutely aware that he's there, not just mentally aware. You need to know like, man, God is present and I sense it. It's real. It's subjective and subjective in that sense. Like I know it in my heart, in my mind. And with that one thing in the forefront of your mind, I'm going to ask you this. Will you now, with that in mind, think in a biblically filtered fashion about it and act in biblically followable ways regarding it. If you'll do those two things, I'm going to bank on that verse's promise. The God of peace will be with you. And that's all I can give you is God and his word. Amen. So I give this to you this morning. The God of peace will be with you in that very item or situation or problem. He'll be with you as you think in a filtered fashion and then follow those who've given you good habits and practices to follow.